Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to May the 23rd. 2012, that's quite a while back. This was originally episode 907, Jeff Lawton on the future of permaculture. I believe it was the second time that I had Jeff on the show. Um, before I get into kind of some, some thoughts on this old episode and some things to uh, consider as you re-listen to it, let me just say I hope you had a wonderful Merry Christmas and an awesome holiday season as a whole. As I've said many times on the air here, I don't, I don't get in a wad over the whole happy holidays versus Merry Christmas thing. First of all, I think that when somebody says something nice to you, no matter what it is, the proper response is some form of acknowledgement that they were nice to you. Secondly, I, I do look at holidays for me, and I don't try to define what anybody else's holidays are, but as an American, Whether you're religious or not, I kind of see the holiday season beginning in Thanksgiving and ending uh, in the soon-to-be New Year's. And Christmas, of course, lying somewhere in between those two. And to me, that whole season is what I mean when I say happy holidays. So I hope you had a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about this show. So Jeff is an amazing guy. Jeff is probably... Um, one of my biggest mentors, certainly in the world of permaculture, he would be my, my top mentor in, in the world of permaculture. Um, all of the stuff that I've talked about that come from the permaculture space, um, it's not that maybe I wouldn't have found it in some other way, but Jeff is the way that I found it. So everything that I've ever put out over 11 and a half years now on permaculture goes back to a little video called Greening the Desert that somebody sent to me when I had been doing TSP for maybe a couple months. And I remember sitting and watching this, and it was horribly done as far as graphics and all, but it conveyed what was done in in Jordan, in, in the Dead Sea Valley. And I, I remembered it was just the day before that I was bitching about how hard the climate in north-central Texas can be as a gardener. And as I watched how this man directed a project that literally greened the desert in one of the most inhospitable places in the world for growing things, I said to myself, Jack, you have no excuse. You should be doing more than you are. And I was already doing quite a bit. And it lit a fire under me. And as I dug into this permaculture thing, I thought about my preconceived ideas of it. And I had seen some of the hippies rolling in mud and stuff like that. And I always saw permaculture as, yeah, that is permaculture. So I, I did some digging and I found some of Bill Mollison's uh, videos, including um, the Global Gardener series, which is still amazing. But I found a video called In Grave Danger of Failing Food. And it's in that video at some point, Bill is talking about when he was a younger man, And he was cutting trees down for a living so that people could build houses. And he and the other men that cut those trees down had realized that none of them, if they kept doing what they were doing, would ever be able to afford a house 
that was built with the trees they were cutting down and how futile that was. And he began to look around at the natural systems around him. And in his own words, he was a pretty crusty old man by the time he said this, he said, I realized I could let the bastards roll over everything or I could fight the bastards. So I decided to fight the bastards. And I went, wow, that's, that's warrior talk. That's not hippie bullshit. And from there I decided I was going to learn everything that I could about permaculture. And it led me to many of the, the, the people that I have brought to you guys over the years. Um, Paul Wheaton, Diego Footer, Ben Falk, who you're going to hear one of my original uh, interviews with Ben Falk tomorrow. Uh, and many people kind of not quite in permaculture, but sort of in permaculture, like Lee Reich, Growing Fruit Naturally, which I think we'll probably have for you as a rewind next week, the interview I did with him years ago. So it all stemmed from that. Now, a few things to look at in today's um, re, uh, rewind. One, I have a lot of the links that were mentioned, and I've checked some of them, but it's my holiday, and I haven't checked them all, and some I knew were not working, so I took down. So this is so old, some of the links in the show notes may not be there anymore. Um, a couple things I did want to kind of point out to you, uh, and it does say in the whole notes, but you're going to hear... Jeff talk about a plant when I ask him about some plants that maybe we can grow in temp, temperate climates. Uh, Austrian holus pumpkin. I've grown that a lot over the years. I've mentioned before, but it's it, most of the seed catalogs you find it in, you will find it listed as listed as Styrian. Styrian is Styria is another word for Austria. Um, you also might see it as naked seed or something like that. It's pretty much all the same, and these are. Pumpkins that grow with a seed that has no real husk on them. There's actually a very thin, paper-thin husk. But the point is you can open them up, dry the seed out, or roast the seed, and use the seed as is without having to take it out of the shell. Uh, I believe, actually, a lot of the pumpkin seeds that are sold that are kind of marketed to the Hispanic community called pepitas are actually that variety of seed as well. They're a decent-eating pumpkin, but they're a great seed pumpkin. So if you're looking for that after this... Um, you might want to check into it. Then the other one is salad mallow, also known as jute mallow or Jews mallow. I grew that a lot over the years. It's in the same family as okra. If you ever grow it, the little seed pods look like little mini okra pods. Don't eat one. They taste awful. They were really cool-looking little blue seed in them. They were very, very difficult to find at one time. They're not that hard to find anymore. I originally got my seed from France, and it got held up by customs, and it was expensive. Uh, but eventually I did get my hands on it. It grows really, really well, but it may not be a crop for everybody. We, we found ourselves eating very, very little of it. Uh, it has kind of an ochre-like, but it's a survival crop. Uh, I had it for years without replanting it. It finally has seemed to not show back up on its own anymore here, but I think I planted it once, and I had it for four years consecutively. So uh, it's, it's one of those crops that... You can rely on, but it may not be your favorite thing to eat. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, and go back to, um, again, May the 23rd, 2012, episode 907 of the Survival Podcast, Jeff Lawton on the future of permaculture. And I'll point out with a little bit of fun that we're now living in that future that we talked about all those years ago. 
Uh, again, I'm going to bring Jeff on, and I've already told you kind of like my personal experience, but I want you to realize that Jeff Lawton has been doing this stuff heavily since 1983. That's a long time. He's worked all over the world with permaculture. He is the head of the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia, and he does an amazing job there. But he travels all over the place, to the Middle East, to Central and South America. You name it, he's done that. He's been there, and his results speak for themselves. He is an absolute pioneer in permaculture, a wonderful teacher, and uh, one of what I consider my remote mentors, somebody that I've been learning from for a long time, for a very long time. And like I said, it is really an honor to have him on the show today. And with that, hey, Jeff, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Oh, it's it, it's great to have you on, and my audience knows exactly who you are because I've been talking about you for a long time, and we talk a lot about permaculture here. But a lot of, this is kind of like a, I just maybe a different kind of question to get started with. A lot of people out there don't know about permaculture and maybe don't know who you are. So when you meet someone who has no idea about who you are and what you do, and they have the common question, you know, what do you do for a living? How, how do you answer that? Yeah. Almost every time the first word to a quest, to a permaculture question is it depends. So it will depend on who's asking the question. Um, and I, I, li- I very much like to say to a lot of people that um, I'm actually a farmer because that's what I love to do. I love to work on the land. But I'm, I'm a managing director of the Permaculture Research Institute. Um, I'm also uh, a consultant and designer so uh, the Permaculture Research Institute is a non-profit organization that teaches permaculture and demonstrates permaculture demonstration sites and sets them up around the world. Um, as a designer and a consultant, I, I literally do that. I design and consult for people. And uh, the next question is usually, well, what is permaculture? And um, it's, a, it's a system of design uh, for st- sustainable living where uh, humanity can provide all its needs in a way that's beneficial to the environment itself. And uh, um, if if I don't get a blank face, then um, <laughs> I pull up. But otherwise, I might have to go into a little bit of a, a, a sort of teaching explanation and, and carefully sort of carve that explanation out in relation to who's asking the question. And, and I think you have to be, you know, you have to be sort of a little bit bit of a diplomat and a bit of a navigator um, to make sure that it's taken the right way and because it's, it's it is a bit emotional what's happening worldwide and and when people get emotional then they we don't we, we lose a bit of clarity sometimes we can make a few mistakes there so we just make sure that we can sort of be be careful about how we explain things and just say it's not something too wild or it's not something too organized it's something that's quite organic but it, it it's it's got good track record now and it's working for for me i've explained it to a lot of people is in, in in many ways it's almost a system of troubleshooting so we can go into a piece of property and look at it and see all the things that we don't like about how things are working and use this organized approach to design the land to get what we want out of it without doing further damage and without harming things around it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great methodology for repairing the landscape, even on the broadest of scales, even on the scale of uh, the Laos Plateau, uh, where, you know, uh, 35,000 square kilometers were repaired in, in China, the most 
degraded ecosystem on the planet, right down to a little balcony. Um, it's, it's really a, a, a wonderful common sense methodology of design. On the other end of the scale, it's probably an evolution in thinking. And what we do is translate the, the language of permaculture into an approach to that evolution of thinking that may be an evolution of humanity, I think, hopefully. Yeah, I, I completely agree. When you look at permaculture today, um, what do you think we need to do to get more mainstream ex- extreme acceptance of it? Uh, I, I think that we're a lot further along than we were 10 years ago, um, but I still think we have a long way to go. What is it that you find that wins, really wins people over to the concept? Well, we're producing practitioners at an at a extremely fast rate. And they're moving into service, they're moving into action very fast now. Um, We're producing teachers as well, and the number of teachers are increasing, which is great. I encourage people to teach all the time. We we really need more teachers. Um, Designers and consultants are also coming up fast. Um, It may be a little bit more awkward to design and consult for people. It's, It's always the people systems that are hard. It's always the complication of people. We are complicated. Obviously, that's how we, you know, we, we've done what we've done and we can do what we can do in the positive. Um, and then the ultimate is we need people who can set up institutes, like that set up the teaching venues, set up the institutes. And that now is a, a commercial reality, an aid reality, and an obligation that we, we have to produce instigate, instigate, instigators of institutes. Yeah, and I'll tell you one of the things I really admire about you, Jeff. There's a lot of people that have, let's say, your level of recognition, not necessarily in permaculture, but in whatever it is that they do, uh, as a teacher. And they seem to want to like stay like the teacher or the expert. And you seem to have this huge desire to create as many teachers as you can. And if they're if they can teach better than you, so much the better. Yeah, but um, there may be a flip side to that, and that means you have to keep teaching because you become popular with it. Maybe that's the best appetizer of a teacher ever. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd really like to be redundant so I could just stay in farm and, 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 and live my life at a, at a sort of normal level, but um, I feel obliged to keep helping people get going. And um, I'm teaching right as now, uh, I'm teaching at a permaculture teacher's course inside an internship at the moment. It's also open to the public. And we're going through, we're on second day today. And it's a, it's an interesting exercise, teaching people what it is that you actually do as a teacher. You don't really teach them that much in information. You cover the basics of the curricula, but uh, a real teacher lights a fire of passion in people. And... Um, it, if you're a really good teacher, you infect people with permaculture and it's terminal. There's no recovery. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that happen to a lot of people, and I think it's probably the best uh, infection a person can get. Um, one of the things I think that would make permaculture far more uh, accepted and, and used is if we can help people see that it can be profitable. There seems to be this mindset 
in you know in agriculture, which says that you know there's this there's this way to make money, and then there's this way to be natural, you know, friendly to nature, and that the two are somehow you know dis- disassociated with each other. My experience is that permaculture systems create tremendous abundance and tremendous opportunity for farmers to be profitable if they'll use these systems. But how can we help farmers make that transition? Like when they're stuck in this modern system and they want to move over, what are some steps they can take to kind of pay the bills while the system takes over? Well, unfortunately, um, because we've been so clever with our technological advances and the advantage of fossilized sunlight resources, and we've exploited those. It's like the Jevons providime that when we keep providing something, it keeps getting used up. Hmm. Um, the, um, the advantage we've gained in technology um, as, as sort of coming close to, a, to a, a, an exploited finite endpoints, we can see those. And um, the, 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 the ecology of Earth is the one resource we can extend. And we're just starting to realize that we can extend the, the, the ecology further than ever imagined, probably hundreds of thousands or millions of times more resourceful in its living resources. And <clears throat> everything that we, we, we use at present comes from an original ecology of some sort. So um, the, the, the resources, the source of the resources um, I live in systems and the only systems we can extend and, and, and enhance and, and improve everything as we do. So uh, what we're using are derivatives and, and we, don't put the, um, we don't put an importance on the source, which is always originally the, you know, the sunlight and the living systems of Earth. And, and there's nothing green about that. That's just straightforward chemical science, if you like. Um, so any other industry, if we're looking at straight industries, we don't, we, don't, we don't put the derivatives in front of the source of the derivatives. Everything derives from the ecosystems in reality. So I think we're coming to a point in the information age where we're going to realize this. And I think it is actually starting to happen. Hopefully we get to a tipping point reasonably quickly before there's too much of a crash. Um, and we'd better get ready for that crash, of course, and put a lot of airbags in the car or the truck because it's a bit of a juggernaut that we're, we're charging along here in. But um, it, it's, it's a matter of, 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 of actually valuing the source element and a green economy and let's not think of that as sort of woo-woo or hippie too much it's 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 about money of course it's about economy it's about exchange in convenient ways but that that ecological economy is bigger and has more exchange and finance and money and employment and meaningful existence in it than 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 the Production and consumption economy, we've, we've presently driven to the point of our own extinction. We, we've sort of, we've been exploitive rather than creative around that thinking. And I think there is a switch happening. And I think it will come from the business community. I think it will come from the, um, uh, the people who are presently actually in power and, and, and the people who have um, 
still some sort of controls in in ways that that I don't think there's you know it's all that many bad people out there really it, it there obviously are but there's there, most people are you know coming to us um and 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 realizing that there's a big change there's a really big change happening we're working for um governments we're working for um kingdoms um uh, we're working for large corporations who are seeing this change around, and um, and it, and and it, it's it's definitely it's definitely an economy that is going to grow beyond our imagination. So uh, I don't think there's a problem there. Actually, I can imagine people investing very soon in setting up institutes as demonstration sites. And education centres because they are economic, because they are a good business, and I'm 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 trying to get ready to facilitate that um, action because I can see it coming. It's on the horizon, not that far away. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you, uh, but when I first really learned about permaculture, when I when I first thought I learned about permaculture, I thought permaculture was I plant a tree instead of a corn plant. And then I actually learned about the entire system of design, started getting turned on to Bill's earlier work, your work, things like that. And once I, I did and I got an understanding of things like earthworks and, and, and edges and zones and layers and all this stuff, I started, I'd drive down the road and I'd go, look at all of this wasted space. Look at, look how we've made the water go away instead of stay. Look at what we could do there. Look at this, look at this corporate campus and how much food could be grown instead of, of grass. Did you have that same kind of experience when you first kind of entered this world? Yeah, I mean, you, you can't switch it off. Um, and and you kind of forget you, you look back that far when um, 1980 when I first got involved and 1983 when I took my course with Bill um, but I have students come to me I had a student come to me and say y you've ruined my view of the countryside <laughs> <laughs> so good uh, it needs to be ruined you need to get it right and don't go out there and plant a tree plant an ecosystem and, and we like to try and shock people a little bit out of their reality zone, you know, like, you know, don't plant trees, you know, and people look and they're shocked. What do you mean? Don't plant trees. You're, you're supposed to be green and all this. No, plant ecosystems that, you know, become stable, um, you know, guilds of trees and plants that can extend themselves. They have some integrity, you know, think about it. You know, it's not just about uh, straight lines and, you know, plant something that has a natural matrix of stability and um, get out of that box a bit, you know. And, and so I think people like that. They, they, they're excited about all the possibilities. Yeah, I, I do, too. I get a lot of questions uh, about earthwork stuff. And, and one of the things I've talked about a lot on the show is reducing irrigation requirements or even eliminating it using swales and contour paths and things like that. And I've, I've honestly answered this question. I'm hoping that when it comes from you, people will stop asking it, honestly. Um, but I get a tremendous number of people saying, well, I can't do swells because my land is absolutely flat uh, or I'm in a sandy environment or something like that. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, kind of how that works out, how swales and contour paths can work in areas that maybe people don't get their head around right away? Did you say contour paths? Uh, yes, like in, in between like raised beds. Oh, wonderful. It's so nice to hear you use that terminology. Uh, <laughs> well, I learned it from you, so I'm not going to claim credit for it. That's, that's, that's your term. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's sort of swale thinking on footpaths in between raised beds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Look, uh, people get a little bit afraid about the large machinery because it kind of looks like some kind of war machine, like a tank. A bulldozer literally is a tank with a blade on the front, nearly. Um, but it's all a matter of scale. Um, and uh, one of the great lessons of permaculture pattern understanding, uh, chapter four in Bill's book, The Designer's Manual, is about understanding scale as well as the physical patterns. And um, the scale of a bulldozer and this machinery is, is it only looks big in relation to a hu human's physical size. In, in relation to the planet, it's not very big at all. Um, in fact, um, uh, a brain surgeon working on your scalp with a, with, a, with a scalpel or even laser surgery is much, much bigger than the biggest bulldozer on this planet working on the surface of the earth. It is nanosurgery, even using a 120-ton D12 bulldozer. It's, it, comparatively to brain surgery, it's nanosurgery. And what we're doing is reconstructive earth surgery. And, and the wonderful men who drive these machines can be real artists and creative workers, just like sculptors. Um, they can use those machines very, very creatively, and they understand water because they haven't deal with levels and water all the time. So they're geosurgeons, <laughs> and um, and we could train armies and armies and armies of people. We could we could put all the bulldozers into service, all the machinery into service to repair this planet, and within less than a decade it would be a completely different place. And I wish some of the large earth-moving companies would realize that because they, 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 they could do with some um, research and development about how we could build, apply these machines and, 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 and design machines that could do this even better and quicker because they have that ability still. But uh, the general person, sorry, the general person doesn't understand some basic things. The flat of the land and that we are not on flat land unless you're on a salt pan there is no perfectly flat land um, and a salt pan is a dried up lake um, so if you're on slightly sloping land very very flat land in appearance you have the ability to harvest more water because you just put a one meter earth bank up um, or a three feet high earth bank and you're holding back hundreds of feet of water or hundreds of meters of water because it holds so much more water behind the earth bank, behind the swell bank. Uh, whenever you dig a hole, you end up with surplus material. So when you're building a dam, you end up with all these creative opportunities of spare soils and subsoils that you can create earth banks. And, and when you're in flat country, you also have a lot of problems with um, stress on the landscape because there's no wind breaking. So wind is often a stressful element. So every time you come up with um, a problem, there's, there's a creative solution. And, and usually the bigger the problem, the bigger the creative solution. And that's kind of like an oxymoron. It doesn't seem to make sense. And I remember when I did my course with Bill in 83, and he said, you know, the the more problems we have, um, the, more, the more restrictions you have on a design, the more creative you will end up in a design phase and the design will end up more of a creative event. And I thought, how, how, how does that work? That doesn't make sense. I mean, 
I, I've, I'm trained as an engineer originally, a mechanical engineer, so I, I have a mechanical way of thinking about things, and, and that just seemed to be a ridiculous thing to say. It just was back to front. But then, actually, when you get out there and you you start working, you realise that um, that's absolutely true. And, and this funny saying that we have in permaculture, the problem is the solution, forces one to be more creative. And it's kind of like the Einstein statement that, you know, if we, you know, there's, there's more interesting things out of the box than there is in the box we're presently in. And if you stay within the box, you stay within that paradigm of thinking. When you step outside, all this, all this creativity comes out. And of course, we govern, we govern our actions by functionality. So we look at the, every, every placement of every element, we look, we rationalize, we legitimize to people and, and we, and we try and position it so it has more than one function. So multifunctionality, uh, rationalization, legitimization of placement, it, it becomes the, you know, that becomes this, uh, you know, explorative design mind that you develop. And, and, um, I, I, I think it, the, the people, the young men that I'm seeing coming through, uh, our courses here um they're gonna they're gonna be incredible what they can do will be able to design in the next twenty to thirty years uh, at this present moment we couldn't even imagine we couldn't even imagine it yeah and I mean the one thing I want to make sure that people that people kind of glean from what you said there is that even when you think it's flat it's not flat, and there are contours there to be worked with because you had contours in, in in your greening the desert project right i mean that's that's about as flat looking as it gets, but yet you had contours to work with. Oh yeah, yeah. That the the surveying of flat land is more difficult because the the levels are subtle. <clears throat> now here's an example. That land was ten acres in size, and it was only at a four foot fall over the over the whole ten acres at a diagonal. So it was quite a small fall. Um. But on flat land like that, you can move slightly up and down hill in the line of a swale. In other words, you can go off contour, up or down hill, because on the horizontal, you only go up and down a few inches. So you just make the swale trench deeper or shallower to avoid an obstacle or to connect to something of value, or to put shape and form around infrastructure, or for whatever reason, you end up with a creative license because of the subtlety of the landscape. Now, you can't do that on hill country, because if you move sideways, going uphill, all of a sudden you've gone up too quickly, and you've gone down too quickly downhill, you can't vary the line hardly at all, if at all. The steeper it gets, the more restrictive it is on your potential creativity of varying contour because you can't adjust the depth. So flat country is more creative in its comparative design end result. That's, it stands out. It completely stands out in flat country. That you, well, what the hell have you done over there? There's a huge oasis. Where the hill country, you're you're harmonising with the landscape forms more precisely because you have to, and that's all we're actually doing a lot of the time. And we are harmonising with the cosmic energies 
that created and formed the landscape in the first place. And that's not a cosmic statement. That's an actual fact. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, on the, on the contour lines, I mean, I've kind of put it that the, the, the contours are there whether we choose to work with them or not. And if we choose not to work with them, they're going to show us just how apparently they really are there. And, and it basically will get erosion and damage to anything we try to put in place. When we work with them, it's kind of like a sculptor that says, okay, the, 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 the sculpture was in the block of marble before I chipped it away. I just revealed it. And I was going to ask you kind of, because I've noticed this as I started to do a lot of work on land that already has some regrowth on it, that there's a lot of growth that naturally occurs on existing contour line that we've never touched. Yeah. Yeah, there are specific points in landscape, uh, particularly the point of inflection at the top of a valley, the key point where the valley goes from convex to concave, where um, you get a lot of regrowth because that is the first point at the top of the valley where water slows. As soon as water slows, not only do you get accumulated hydrology and dampness, but you also get residual material, which is often extra minerals and organic fertilizers or organic materials accumulated. So you'll get these points and wherever we slow water, we, we gather materials as well. And that is a constant. So there are many constants to look for out there that we can design to. Water only moves at right angle to contour is a constant. And when it slows, when you slow water or you slow air, you drop the materials that the water or air is carrying for its velocity at that time. These are constants. So there are lots of little constants out there that we can anchor to as designers. And um, water is, a, is, is such a, a major element of life. Water and carbon are the two major elements. And as we design these systems, what we're doing is we're slowing the energy loss of the system. In other words, we are extending the entropy. Entropy being the energy that is lost out of systems. Einstein quoted, it was quoted as saying, energy is constant in the universe. It just transfers from one element to another, one system to another. But entropy is constantly increasing. He's remembered for the energy statement, but not so much the entropy statement. The entropy is a very important part of what we're doing. So we're we are, we are designers of long-term energy storage, which then can be put to use. And water is an amazing energy. And uh, it's never the amount of water you have that's important. It's the amount of times you use that water, the more, number of times you put it to use. If you only have, you know, 10, 10 gallons of water, you use it once, that's all you have. If you use it 10 times, it's like you have 100 gallons of water. There's some interesting things I've seen you explain that could be done with water to kind of take that, that entropy and it just when it's about that you've just about done everything you can and it's about to fall off the end and go down to the next property that you don't have control over, how you can rebound it. Like one thing I saw that you said you could do is plant like a, a, a pond down at the bottom and plant reeds in that pond and that fertility on the land ends up in that pond. So it ends up in the reeds. And now if we simply cut those reeds once in a while, take them to the top of the property, we haven't rebounded the water at that point, but we've used the water's property to rebound the fertility. Are there some other things like that you could maybe talk about? 
Yeah, we're, we're setting up little energy traps and, and, and soaks and, and sponges. And carbon is the great sponge on the planet. So if you continuously think of it as your, as your sponge, you know, your, your um, high uh, nitrogen manures will, will bond up in carbon and, and that's how your compost actually works. And you're, you're, you're slowing down the leach point by bonding to carbon. Uh, the reeds bond the um, uh, mobile elements in the water, the suspended nutrient in the water and sediments in the water, and they bond it in their bodies, linking it to carbons in that life process. That's how the giant swamps in the Mississippi work at the bottom of your great river there in North America. The cypress swamps are, are giant sponges and, and are really America's greatest asset. Um, and there's a wonderful... Um, repair job that needs to be done to, to, to put that into function in a, in, in a greater form. Um, so you can look at the, um, the macrocosm or the microcosm to learn about the, um, um, this universe and this reality. Uh, it's the edges that are interesting. So if you look right to the outside edges of everything, you can see things much clearer than trying to look at the hole in the middle. I talk to a lot of people about edge thinking. So your edge of your systems from the top where the energy is, is highest but the life is lowest to the bottom where the energy is lowest but the life is highest. And, and there you can pull some of that back. You're, you're designing your system so you can pull back from the bottom and redistribute higher up in the system so it, it takes another cycle. You can never get it all though. We can never get everything, but we sure can improve on what we're doing. In fact, I don't think we could do a worse job than what we're doing. <laughs> I think we have to try very hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can agree. Because like, you start talking about what a great asset the swamps are, and immediately I think about how if they're not protected swamps, the first thing people do with them is drain them. Uh, and it, it, it drives me absolutely bonkers. Um, switching up, though, a little bit, uh, I've got a ton of people that listen that don't have, you know, the four or five, ten acres, 20 acres. They have the suburban lots. And uh, when you said the more restrictions you place, the more, uh, the more you can actually do with design if, you, if you're creative, I don't think there's a better example than your urban permaculture DVD, which, by the way, was absolutely fabulous. But what I get from people all the time is, what, what are some things I can do with smaller pieces of land? And I know the, the typical answer is you can do whatever you like if you follow the rules and what have you. But are there some things that maybe you've learned over the years that are like the biggest like bang for the buck, either plantings or earthworks, like specific plants or specific things that people can shape their land with on those small tenth to half acre suburban lots? Yeah, um, micro earthworks work fine. The thing is with small spaces that it's so productive per square meter, more productive or per square foot, um, more productive than any other land per area on Earth um, because you have that, you know, you have that much energy and attention over the area and um, in, in suburbs particularly you have so much microclimate with a thermal mass of buildings and hardware and runoff from roads um, so you can create this uh, micro enhanced landscape and um, your design options are much higher um, so you can go into very high value crop you can go into very high value elements it's, it's, it's not an area to waste on on main crop systems like you know standard cut 
carbohydrate crops are, are kind of wasted really in suburbs. I mean, we can we can do all that on the larger area just outside of um, human settlements. But uh, I think eventually we'll have extremely high value, uh, rare and quite difficult to um, produce elements within cities, uh, within within small spaces. Um, almost like um, the, the future pharmaceuticals of the world, um, the future medical um, uh, system production um, and the uh, highly specialised uh, uh, mineral accumulators um, eventually will be the, uh, the production elements there. And um, everything more or less cycling from um, the uh, wastes of humanity, that which are, we naturally have certain waste systems and, and packaging systems all and um, and we always have wastewater because we use always you know where there's people there has to be water, um, but then we have crop residues uh, from the larger crops in in the perimeter, and it's a, uh, a it's a, it's a very interesting and pleasant place when you look at it redesigned, um, but it's um, it's one hell of a it's 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 one hell of a contract to redesign, um, but there's a lot of it's going to have to be done, and and I think uh, that that in itself is. It's going to be very exciting for some people because that's that's what they're that's what they specialize in and that's what they they're interested in. Yeah, I'm always trying to tell people the stuff that you can't easily buy, and a lot of times that's the stuff that's really good but doesn't store well or doesn't ship well. It's ideal to grow in those urban environments because that way it can go from from the field to the plate in in, in minutes. So there is no shipping, and I think there's a lot of stuff that you know is kind of like that. Um, uh, Nanking cherry, for instance, they're a great fruit, but they leak and they don't really ship or store well. But we can grow those in small spaces in, in a backyard. Yeah, yeah. Now, unfortunately, <clears throat> they um, the supermarkets don't sell a lot of the crops that would be ideal for where the supermarket is. <laughs> and they're not likely to tell you to do this either um, because they'd sort of, they'd feel like they were putting themselves out of business. They probably wouldn't be. It would probably be quite the reverse. Um, I think uh, the ultimate um, diet of humanity would be um, from a recipe book that always had a place and a date on it. So mm. every recipe would have the... Um, um, the 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 place and the month of the year and then everything that was in every recipe would be producible at that site or very oh. close by and and if we then if that was the the product if that was the advertising theme of um, um, the seller of food then then you would know you were buying everything from from uh, local to be uh, zero food miles and zero food time and and zero food guilt um, and uh, I think that's the ultimate food franchise actually and and I don't think we are at the end of understanding everything that will grow everywhere um, we're, we're still collecting food plants of the world in fact the desert food plant collection is uh, not really been done very much at all um, so uh, there are being permaculture people we naturally um, lean towards diversity because we realize it is the interactivity of diversity that gives us those stable 
productive ecosystems that we're famous for all. Um, and, um, and, and so we're always collectors of plants. Um, I grow all sorts of things on the site where I am here in, in Australia that are uh, quite expensive in the, in the shops, in the, in the health food shops and in the supermarkets even. And um, they, they're rampant. They're, they're, they're no problem. I don't even <laughs> them. I almost have to slow them down. Yeah. Um, I just read an article you wrote a couple years ago on a plant I had never heard of before called salad mallow. And uh, you, you said that it really we need to look at it as a crop of importance, almost like a main crop. Uh, and that was a couple of years ago. How did your work with that plant go? And are there? And I love new things. Like as soon as I read that, I found one place I could get seeds shipped to the United States from, and it was in the UK, and it was like twelve bucks for shipping to get this little packet of seeds sent over. But I was happy to pay it. it, it how'd that work? And are there any other like things like that that? we can grow that people don't think of specifically because I love your DVDs, but you know, like this is a tree tomato that doesn't grow in temperate climates or it doesn't live anyway through the first season. Any other thing that like folks like me in these, these temperate climates can grow? Um, yeah, uh, there is just, um, you know, an endless list almost. And there's some great collections worldwide in the permaculture movement. Um, it would be great, actually. We've talked. We make those DVDs on a real budget, um, on the film inside of the budget. I literally knock them out in just a few days, um, one take each time, almost ad lib. Um, we've talked about, you know, it would be great to be funded to go to uh, other climates uh, around the world and um, make the DVD in relation to each different climate. Um, we have a whole list of how-to DVDs we'd like to do now where we're a little bit more hands-on how-to. Um, the crop you're talking about is uh, the salad mallow has many names in the common names. It's, uh, it's a Cocorus uh, it, genus. It's Cocorus oleatorus, and it's uh, related to okra. Um, so it's very similar to your okra, which is famous in, in the southern states of America. Um, and um, you can eat the pod like okra when it's very small um, and it's uh, from the Middle East it was a food of the pharaohs and it hasn't been heavily domesticated so it's very very strong from the seed and as soon as temperature comes right dormant seeds lying around just take off just take off um, I wrote very very easy to grow and the highest green leaf potassium in the world which is an unusual sort of element potassium is sometimes a little bit hard to get a hold of in the compost and in your food um, and that's a great storer um, the other one um, that we grow that's interesting is the uh, hullless pumpkin which grows the green seed you don't eat the meat of the pumpkin but you eat the green seed um, and it comes uh, you can put it into your cereal and it's um, um, you don't have to prepare it you just dry it out of the pumpkin Austrian hullless pumpkin um, it's the highest food in vitamin E, um, another great uh, accumulator of an element that's very valuable. Um, like, I just want to be clear on that because I know I'm going to get, I'm going to find a source for this and, and put a link in the show notes today. But you said wholeness, as in the absence of a whole, right? Yeah, yeah. You okay. eat green pepita seed. Awesome, awesome. And I'm going to find that. Send you through links to those uh, elements, and then. Um, Another one that we're growing now, we've just actually planted our winter crop here, is, um, is uh, Ethiopian cabbage. Um, it's a, a, a cabbage that's uh, an open cabbage, a tall stick cabbage. It doesn't go into a ball. 
but the leaves taste exactly like cabbage and um, it's uh, a very very strong uh, true strain cabbage that is unstoppable I mean it's just uh, it, it, it's uh, the hardiest brassica uh, cabbage broccoli family that uh, you know cauliflower family the brassicas it's the hardiest brassica I've ever grown in my life I got it from uh, uh, Michel Phantom of Seed Savers here uh, about uh, eight years ago and um, I have kilos and kilos of seed it's easy to grow grow on from seed and it's just I don't know why you'd bother too much on a larger area growing any other brassica it's just uh, uh, literally the, the, the easiest brassica I've ever seen uh, and, and the flavor of that is it similar to head cabbage or more like kale or what what's what's the uh, the, the flavor of that plant well we have chefs here that work at the Institute and um, they're saying that there's hardly a difference between it and cabbage. Might be slightly towards the kale, but not much. Okay. It's more or less a cabbage. Uh, another one we're growing here, and we're actually using it as a pioneer in food forests when we start up food forest systems. We've, uh, we do broad, broad food forests here where we graze cows um, in a, um, um, a cell grazing system that is a, a polycultural cell grazing interaction that I have to write about uh, because I think it's the best uh, it's one of the best little innovations that I personally have come up with um, it's an electric solar powered electric laneway on uh, steel wire uh, with uh, multiple um, electric tape gates that I can lead cows along the laneway, which they get used to, and then out on these cell gates. And I have a complete flexibility about the mobile tread-in fence posts and uh, electric tape that I set the cell off on. So I, I have complete flexibility outside of the laneway. I've um, about two miles of laneway um, and about 47 gates. And I have a variability of over a hundred cells, but I can vary their size. So I graze an area, I clean up what the cows haven't eaten, and then I, about 30 to 50 days later, I graze it again, and then I'll um, I'll clean up the area that bit more. They've manured it, they've carbon footprinted it, and then I put in an electric net run on the solar system uh, to hold chickens, and I put uh, 150 square meters with about to 35 chickens. And about 10 days to two weeks later, they've cleared that land out, almost bare soiled it. I give it one rotary hoe and then put a cover crop in, and I'm into a food forest, 150 square meters at a time. So we're, we're chunking our way across country, reforesting either as food forest or whatever sort of forest. But I put in a lot of pioneer trees and I put in a lot of pioneer plants and, and a lot of cover crop. And, and we accidentally included chia which is this uh, famous energy food grain that the Incas were famous for producing to get high energy to do their running and things. And, and um, we've, uh, we seem to have hit something that, that in this area works as a, as a wonderful pioneer but high-value food, and it's uh, functioning as a, as a crop um, accidentally. For us. We're pioneering grand to food forest, but we're actually producing a very valuable grain. And um, and when you when you offer people chia who are into health food, it's almost like you're 
You offer a bag of drugs or something, they jump on you. <laughs> How much is that? How much is that? <laughs> it, it makes me think of the stupid old thing they used to have called the chia pet. I don't know if they ever had those over your way, but it was like this. It looked like a sheep made out of clay, and you pasted these chia seeds on it, and it grew like sprouts. And uh, it, so, but you found this stuff is just going wild for you on your property. Yeah, well, we've uh, we've got quite a few uh, of my students in this area have developed nice big uh, examples of uh, large permaculture swale dam productive systems, and uh, we share it stuff when it happens. So we threw it out there to a few people, and they've all found the same thing. We've wow. got a, a pioneer carbon stacker that'll that'll get you up into food forest and give you uh, a product that's worth many, many, many dollars. Uh, per kilo. I mean, it's a very, very expensive crop. And when we put it onto our website, again, I, I wrote an article about it and said we had seed for sale. And it's quite a long time ago that that uh, article was on our website. We still get hits. We still get people ring, uh, emailing us and saying, you know, have you got any of that chia seed for sale? Because <laughs> it has such a reputation. Um, that's interesting. Um, if I could real quick ask you about the, the, the work you're doing with cattle, because I have a large segment of my audience that seems to feel that there's no way we can do meat sustainably. And, and my response has always been, well, then we're, we're screwed because we're made out of meat. So we, we have to make meat sustainable. But it sounds like you're doing very sustainable meat production. Uh, look, you, you can't grow vegetables sustainably without animals. I mean, you, uh, there's no way that you can fertilize I mean, you have to have an animal interaction. Um, you're not going to do it all with leguminous plants. Um, and there are no vegetarian foods out there that don't have an animal manure interaction somewhere along the line. I mean, it's just not reasonable to think that way. Um, there's a wonderful article, again, on our uh, our pod, uh, podcast on our website from Evan Young talking about this in detail. But... Uh, no, we, we're, the hardest workers on this farm are the beef cows. Second to those are the dairy cows. Um, and beef cows do the rough work. And um, they improve country at a rate that we would never, ever be able to achieve. I arrogantly thought that a few of us working hard with hand tools would pioneer forests and, and get in and, and recover landscape. Um, out of the the weed species into a quality forest. But no, the cows do it so much better. They are the best reforesters. And cattlemen will be the future foresters of the earth. And they'll create more forests than anybody. Um, and and, And we need to make that clear for people and, and, and just very obvious, very obvious common sense. Um, they'd naturally do it. They, they, they just need uh, management. And a lot of that is not just the physical management, but it's the time in management as well. Karen, excuse my two-year-old trying to... No, play. it's cool hearing your little one uh, going on back there. Don't, don't apologize for it at all. Uh, that's awesome. Um, and so um, I'm... Um, I'm very fond of that. Um, I, I, I couldn't live without my animals. Um, I would feel rather strange. And they set the timing of everything. Um, so some people say to us, oh, you know, you've got dairy cows. Well, it's like a prison sentence. I, I think it's quite the opposite. It's like saying that about children. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, you know, children can seem like, you know, uh, 
you know they take all your time or they or they take or they give you all the pleasure so it's 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 just a matter of that relationship you're in a relationship with the living elements of earth and there is nothing that can't be turned into a positive i reforest with goats and that shocks people and it's just a matter of penning up the goats and feeding them the weed trees and relieving the forest of the weed trees we have privet and and other uh, weed trees that the goats eat uh, we don't give them the choice of how or when they uh, when they they browse through the regrowth forest. We take the cut forest to them. The forest opens up. Um, the legume trees come in that have been stripped out by grazing animals, but we don't allow into those areas anymore. And good trees can then be interplanted. So it's literally the goats give us the incentive to cut. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the incentive. This is where the economics come in. I, I could never afford to cut all the weed trees that I cut for the goats, only that I milk goats and I get goat meat from their, from their offspring. So I'm getting meat, I'm getting manure, I'm getting milk, I'm getting the, the, the purpose to cut the weed trees to allow the good trees to come back. It's that, it's that understanding of, of, of relationships. and. And I think we'll probably get it with, pe with, with animals before people, and hopefully it will lead us to ourselves. <laughs> awesome, awesome stuff. It also makes me think of um, one of the things I remember hearing Bill say one time was there's no such thing as vegetarians, only repressed carnivores. No, we're just not thinking our way down the food chain. It, it's not a pyramid, really. It's not a top-down system. Um, there's nothing out there that's particularly top-down. It's all a complex life web matrix. When we engage in that and think that way, we can, we can speed up that matrix. We can make that matrix a lot more exciting. Um, and, of course, in that uh, productive and, 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 and permanent and stable. Do you have any suggestions? The one thing I always see, every time I see you talk about building a dam, you're always in the subtropics, and then there's always this place where the water comes out, and then there's a banana circle. And every time I see you build a banana circle, I'm like, dang it, I can't plant bananas. <laughs> Using that same uh, system, do you have like a temperate climate uh, planting guild that would work in that type of an arrangement? It's a it's a common question and a, a difficult one to answer because it's it's the lack of branches on the stem of the banana and also the papaya um, um, and the palms. Now there are not many fruiting palms outside of the subtropics to tropics actually, but there is one that goes to quite cool, and that's the peach palm or jelly palm or wine palm. Okay. It's called. Bootia capitata. Um, now that may stretch further than papaya and and banana. Outside of that, I think we need to um, we need to probably look at um, systems that are different in yield. Um, we may think have to think out of the box a little bit. Now, what you can do is you can, you can put in a willow circle and turn it into a coppiced um, willow production. So you're producing carbon. Now, there are the salix is the willow genus, and there's over 100. And there are some that have very high value. Um, there are the basket willows, of course, 
and then there are the pencil willows which if you charcoal those you get quite a good price for uh, artist pencils once they're charcoaled now a willow doesn't have tap roots um, and, and a banana circle is very valuable as a receiver of surplus nutrient so um, we've just been working with interns here and we put in one at the end of a, a reed bed grey water soakage trench um, so we have a reed bed after a septic and then uh, we have uh, underground soaking um, trenches that have uh, like a leach field so the banana circle will suck out extra um, uh, nutrient there but we've also just put one around a duck pen we have a, a surplus amount of ducks and a, and a duck, little duck pond that overflows um, we've put a gravel trench that picks up that nutrient and ends up in a banana circle. It was a little design exercise. So what we call a, a nutrient-rich gravel trench leading to a banana circle. Now that same sort of nutrient soakage trench, that nutrient direction, uh, could be directed to a willow circle and you could simply turn it into bulk biomass, even if you were just using that as mulch. Willows are a wonderful converter of um, leaching nutrient into stable cut slow to break down carbon mulch so you you can do exchanges what we're doing is That's we're, awesome. we're, we're 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 setting up wonderful sort of miracles of exchange um, we're using the living system as the exchange media that, that's that's an incredible answer, Jeff, because I've been looking for a good answer to that one for a long time. And I, I think, yeah, Willow is a, has a tremendous number of uses, and it would fit into the system. So uh, I've struggled with that one. So thanks for, for that answer, man. I, a, a lot like you have, maybe in, in different capacity, because I was in the military during this time, I spent quite a bit of time in what I would consider like the third world. And I know you've done a tremendous amount of work in third world nations, and I think that maybe lights kind of a fire of hey, there's there's a lot to be done and there's a lot a lot at risk. But one of the things that I noticed when I was in places like Honduras was the the, the poverty people lived in, but their ability to kind of rise above it and and live really good quality lives. But where things were really bad were actually like some of the – instead of out in the countryside, it was more close to the cities where people would, would kind of lose hope. And I was wondering if maybe just based on your experiences with that part of the world, if you've noticed you know, similar things that it's when, when people lose hope that that's when things get really bad. But as long as we can give them something to look forward to tomorrow, we can kind of fix things. Yeah. Um their um, movement from um, traditional systems where there are processes and protocols that uh, are set in to uh, check and balance the emotions that are inevitable in life um, are uh, they're lost once you move towards uh, the aspiration of modern life and modern systems and and um, you you lose your your time quality and time density that sort of degrades away into this uh, um, treadmill type existence where you're rushing, rushing, rushing and you haven't got time to think and, and then you, you get into a hopelessness and that has gradually crept up on the western developed world and it's like we haven't sort of necessarily sensed it coming 
um, and we've just sort of slowly dumbed down to this system that seems like it's the norm and almost inevitable. Where in the uh, developing world, it's been a much faster transition. In fact, it's still happening at a, at a faster and faster rate. So the the speed of of, of degradation of lifestyle is uh, is rapid. So people literally move from uh, a traditional system where everything is nicely set up as far as handling catastrophes or, or strong emotional events with quite detailed and lengthy processes and protocols all of a sudden into this automatic acceptance that you know everything can be gone in a second and and you know you're either on or you're off and you either make it or you don't make it and and you know um well we'll we'll compromise however we like just to you know maybe maybe make that you know big hit you know maybe make that sort of jump into 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 wealth and and, and, and everything we aspire to be instantly, we're in this instant gratification world. And in the in the first world now, our, our kids are, are turning into screenagers, where they're just in front of a screen more than half their day, more than half their, their yeah. And 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 reality is 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 something accepted to a screen. No, you you don't you can't really sense it in, in in half of your senses are not switched on it's only your keyboard finger and 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 nothing else and you, 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 there's nothing to smell there's nothing to touch um, and you, you're hearing you know electronic and seeing electronic digital imagery and um, that's kind of psychologically uh, you know, strange so that's that's that we're, we're moving in, in in strange directions here and and um, and it doesn't take much to get people uh, seeing a little bit of common sense and linking to their their uh, their their, uh, their wisdom of, of traditional processes and protocols. Um, it, it's a sentimental thing in the in the developed world, uh, in the Western world, in the in the in the developing world. It, there is still some reasonably quick links back to it. So. Uh, yeah, there there are some real challenges, um, and there's uh, there's lessons everywhere, I think, um, and um, and 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 the and the future is 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 probably not something we can we can imagine exactly um, in the positive, but uh, it it's it is so possible. I think we have a lot to learn from um, and people that still have those connections and um, and of course they have a lot to learn from us too it's a it's a sharing thing but uh, my concern very much is for just the innocence uh, of the children who are who weren't asked to be born into these situations um, and that I find upsetting um, when uh, there are um, so many complications out there the world gets more and more complicated in its problems all the time but the solutions to the world remain uh, ironically simple um, and that's 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 rather that is rather frustrating I've, I've seen too many children um, simply dying of cholera because um, no one's explained how to make a, a, a functional compost toilet um, um, that, uh, that I, I just, you know, I, I can't believe that hasn't been extended out more than, 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 than what it has. And everywhere I go, I try and help people where children are, are dying unnecessarily. Um, because that, you know, we, 
there's a population issue and we wealth tends to moderate population and when we redefine wealth as not meaning just money but you know clean air and clean food and clean water and sensible housing warmth friendship and community if that's more of a definition of wealth we can also moderate the population of the earth simply by behaving in a way that's beneficial to the earth and and we need you know need kids to realize there's something a little bit beyond what we call wealth at the moment uh, which is just some kind of strange money exchange yeah i think we've gotten lost in that heavily and one of the big things that i try to teach people is to let go of that the stuff lifestyle and i'm not saying not to have some nice things i have some nice things i'm sure you do too but how much of that stuff do we really need and what really gives you a sense of meaning and purpose i know that when um i was still in the corporate world i would come home and i'd go out to the the garden and i'd water it even if it didn't need watering just because after an hour of being on the highway that's what I needed to unplug, not the television set, you know, or, or things like that. I needed to kind of connect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, of course, we're talking to each other on a technology here that we that is an advantage. Um, absolutely, absolutely. That's, you know, uh, and yet we're, we, we've got to balance out what it is that's appropriate. And, there's, you know, we have wonderful achievements of technology and what it is that is not necessarily appropriate. Uh, and mostly it's the, our approach to the technology and our exploitation of people through the technology um, rather than, you know, a creative result. So we've got to look at those, those creative results. Once, once the economy drives the environment and we have gauges for the environment as in, you know, the water's getting cleaner, the air's getting cleaner, uh, biological diversity is increasing, uh, soil fertility is continuously increasing, soil volumes are increasing rather than depleting. Uh, then we have, uh, then all our economy is beneficial to the earth, and and that's that's that green green um, ecology, that's that 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 financial ecology, that's that financial um, economy. Um, that we're, we we need to we need to create. So that's a, um, a a different way of looking at the system. Yeah, um, that's a great lead up to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you today, which is: Do you think that we can take permaculture principles and apply them to things outside of agriculture, like to running a business? And I don't mean in this instance anyway, uh, you know, a business with a large campus growing food. I mean the actual operations of the business independent of agriculture, such as, you know, the 12 design principles. Can they actually be taken over and be used to design a business or a school uh, from kind of, a, you know, a, a logistics standpoint? Yes. Yeah, I think that is being done. Um because permaculture is in many schools. There are nine charter schools in Detroit right now running permaculture programs. But the corporate world has uh, caught up with permaculture. Um, people talk about, you know, uh, um, it would be great if permaculture is in the mainstream. It was great if permaculture is part of the mainstream. Um, I think what's happened is that... Uh, Permaculture is the mainstream, and 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 it's just caught up with us, um, <laughs> and 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 really, um, it's actually you know permaculture has been like this uh, this uh, wonderful lush island that's worth worth landing on, and and 
the mainstream's been sort of circling the coast for a while, trying to figure out where they're going to do the beach landing safely, and um, and um, and that's starting to happen very much. Um, I was involved in um, a design team that um, took on the um, that got the contract to uh, design the landscape for. Um, um, Mazda City in the United Arab Emirates, which is a massive project to design in a, a carbon neutral city. And um, as part of that design team, I was very pleasantly surprised to realize that uh, once I'd gone through the introduction to all the experts on the team, um, they were they were able to uh, communicate with me in every every variation of their expertise, every expert could communicate in relation to permaculture and um, in the design of the landscape and they felt that it was central to the to the theme of the of the design of the new city that uh, permaculture was the the new mainstream system and um, they said they were they were just waiting for this to happen and I realized that uh, we'd, we'd been sort of developing all the time as a central element to future mainstream thinking. And um, I, 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 I thought, we don't have to catch up. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the mainstream has to catch up with this way of, of, of thinking and approaching the world. It doesn't have to be named. It is, it is the evolution of the way we will behave in the future. It's an evolution of human thinking, and and it's where we take our responsibility. Um, we we sort of we're going through an adolescent stage where you know in adolescence you tend to try a lot of different things and you be a bit wild and you kind of you know run yourself down a bit and party all night and do a few things and then eventually you sort of get over it and you become responsible. And you kind of like then you start to really live the majority of your life um, in a response, more of a responsible state. I think that's the uh, that's the state of humanity on this planet. We've got to that. We've just gone. We're just at the end of adolescence, and we're about to take responsibility and start living the real life. Awesome, awesome stuff, Jeff. Um, how can people kind of help you, help the Institute, that type of thing? I mean, I know you're doing great work around the world. Are there ways that people can get involved and, and help out? Yeah. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, we have a lot of institutes that we're setting up and, 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 um, and a lot of places that need help with funding, of course, because there's a lot of – I've got a young man here now, uh, PRI Kenya, He's setting up Permaculture Research Institute Kenya. He's a young Maasai um, African gentleman, and he's um, he took a course with me in Tanzania six years ago. He's gone ahead and proved himself, and I've funded him back here. There's things like that. We put um, a lot of money into our website just to showcase permaculture to the world, and, um, of course, that gives us a bit of um, connections and fills our courses, but... Um, we're setting up more and more institutes worldwide, but something we've done just recently at our own expense, it was a, just a return of surplus, is we set up permacultureglobal.com, which is a, um, we, it's called the Permaculture Worldwide Network. It's a um, connection website, and it's set up on a Facebook-type format. It's a Facebook, Twitter, Google Earth, Google, Google Map, database, of permaculture globally 
and you can see all the permaculture people of the world that have signed up and all the permaculture projects of the world on, on screen. You can fly in on Google Earth or Google Maps and get as close as you like. You can see the pin. Everybody gets a free web page and you can see everybody's resume. You can search for teachers. You can search for projects. You can search for aid workers. You can search for consultants. You can search for in-climate zone. You can pick a drylands or an arctic or a tropical or a temperate climate consultant project or designer or aid worker. All these things. We set this up. It wasn't a it wasn't a little bit of work. It was an enormous, and I'm I'm an internet dinosaur, but I work with people. <laughs> I, I try and work with good people who, who want to help out. That was a very expensive exercise, and we expected the permaculture world or people to help us with that and put their name on it. Only our names on it at the moment. We'd say in the website, this is a a gift to the permaculture world. But if you want to help sponsor it, or anybody wants to help sponsor it, we can drive that 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 that. That's a foundation of a website that can be driven to something that is incredibly interactive. Uh, it's cost us an enormous amount of time and money to get it to where it is, and we're just hoping people will get on board and put their name up on the top and their organization name on it. We don't advertise much, but anybody wants to help us with that website, because if you want, if people come to you and say, what, what's this permaculture movement about? I mean, how big is it? Just direct straight to permacultureglobal.com because then you really see how big we are. You see, you cannot surf your way through that website in a week. It's enormous. Just have a surf through there. It's wonderful. There's so much going on globally. And that's the only website that's provided that service that you can see, oh, wow, this is not a little thing. This is a really big thing that's happening. And that hopefully will help us go towards that tipping point where we don't have to be in such a catastrophe. Awesome. Well, hey, make sure you, you get your uh, your chip-in thing on there where people can donate, uh, started with a new event or something, because I'm going to dump a bunch of people on that website for you uh, when this thing uh, when this uh, this show airs. And I'm going to ask right now that the audience do it. They can help you out with that. So make sure you have a, a button on there where people can do that, because the one you have on there currently is expired. Okay, I, I can do that, um, and I'll send it through to uh, Craig, uh, our uh, web manager. Uh, because, folks, definitely, I mean, we all talk about permaculture all the time on here. You guys are always looking for more information. I know the audience, you guys are really like a sponge with learning this stuff. But doing all this stuff takes a lot of work and takes a lot of effort. So if you guys could consider today chipping in and helping out Jeff and the Permaculture Institute, I'd appreciate it. And, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a, it was a big honor for me to have you on the show. It's something I've been uh, wanting to do for a long time. All right, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Jeff Lawton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.